Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello and welcome to Sentimental Garbage, the podcast where we talk about the books your mother talked about at her book club 17 years ago. My name is Karen O'Donoghue and I'm a writer and a handbag inspired by Grace Kelly. Joining me is journalist and real-life American girl in Paris, Fiona Zublin. Hello. Bonjour. Oh, oh bonjour. <laughs> I can't wait to um, awkwardly pause every time a French word comes up in the discussion of this book and just wait for you to say it because... <laughs> the, the 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 likelihood of embarrassment for me is high. I mean, we could just do like like the normal thing and pronounce all the words in French the way that they look in English. Like we okay. can just call it le divorce instead of like le divorce. Le divorce. <laughs> very good, very good. Like a native. Thank you. <laughs> so um, generally when I you know generally this podcast works where my guest um, connected with a huge piece of literature when they were younger and wants to talk about it now this is not how this episode came to fruition um, actually what happened here was I was like researching for a project set in Paris in the 90s I was kind of scouting around for stuff my American editor Susan Van Susan Van Meter um uh, asked if I had read Le Divorce and I had said no and I read it and then it ate my whole brain and it's <laughs> honestly I I love when this kind of thing happens to me of like oh yeah sure I'm going to pick up this novel that like a, a woman I trust recommended to me and oh no it's like changed the way I think the way I want to write the way I want to be like it's taken over my life the thing is, usually when this happens to me, and this happens with some regularity, I get really annoyed because I'm like, nobody told me about this and everyone had told me mm. about it. It'll always be like, you know, the movie or the book that like everyone has told me to read for years because I'd love it and I just stubbornly refused. And then I finally read it and I'm I'm just like, why didn't you say anything? And everyone's like, we did. And with <laughs> this, it's the opposite. No one told me about this book. I remember this book very strongly. The cover, which also is the film credits, uh, as we discovered. Um, I remember it from my hometown bookstore, seeing it on the display with a little recommendation underneath it as like a 10 year old and saying, that looks stupid. Like I did not want to read yeah. that. And I was kind it of looks stupid. Yeah. I was like a jerk as a 10 year old. And I was like, I am too good for these things that are popular or whatever. Cause like, that's a thing that kids are sometimes, but mm -hmm. like, I feel like the way that this book was marketed was very much like this is a chiclet book about a girl who goes to Paris and falls in love and I don't know divorce probably from the title. Yeah, it's a, it's a funny thing, isn't it? Because I feel like I it it really is a testament to how you know the, as you just mentioned the book illustration, which is like not great. Like it's I I would call it a period piece that book cover. It's like a lot of like kind of Matisse type. Um, line drawings and it just looks a little bit cheesy and it looks like something that you would find in a holiday apartment and yes. then the fact that they um then made that illustration style the credits for the film that came out in 2003 with Kate Hudson and Naomi Watts um show is kind of it's like I feel like I'm an anthropologist looking at cave paintings being like it shows really the effect of the book on contemporary women at the time that they <laughs> They thought that this transition would be so seamless. And both things, both the book and the film, are marketed totally incorrectly. Like, the, the book, yes, it's about this young woman who goes to France and there's a divorce. Yes, this is all true, but it is a piece of literature to me. I think yeah. it's, like, an incredibly written book in the manner of, like, Barbara Torpedo or Nora Ephron. And the film is quite... It's a fairly qu quiet, sort of amusing, nice drama with some international tension in it. And it's marketed as being like, Kate Hudson, Naomi Watts, two sexy ladies going around two Paris. Two sisters having <laughs> adventures and clashing in their personalities sometimes, like little women without the two boring ones. Like <laughs> <laughs> Very little women without the two boring ones. <laughs> 
So, like, what did what did you? So, I, I was kind of got rambling about this book on my Instagram, and you're obviously the quintessential American girl in Paris. You've been living there for a long time. How long now? Seven Six years? years, I think. Let's see. We moved in 2015. Yeah, five years. Five years. Five and a half. I don't know. Something like that. Long enough and to be jaded, but like not long enough to have like earned being jaded. Like I judge sure. the people who moved here two years ago, but I probably shouldn't. <laughs> and like what I'm interested in from your perspective is I'm pretty like I'm pretty sure what got you to this book was the fact that like, oh, Caroline's reading a book about an American girl in Paris. I might enjoy this. But is what got you there what kept you there? Okay, so what got me there was like your response to it seemed like I feel like most of the time media about American women in Paris is okay I'm not gonna say necessarily stupid it's just not something that like I really connect with a lot of it is like Mm. you know maybe someone who does live in Paris but they move there because their husband is French and they feel rejected Mm -hmm. by the French and they want to write a mean book about that and like that's very entertaining in some ways but I'm always just like okay so there's cultural differences all right fine whatever um and then the way that you responded to this book when you were talking about it on Instagram I was like this seems better and I feel like this is this is something based on like the marketing of it that we were talking about with the chiclet that's really been a huge disservice to the book because like when I went on Goodreads to like see your very uh uh put out review of the book there was all these women who were like I read this thinking it was going to be chiclet and it's not and I hate it and like that's what happens when you market your book in a dumb way so Um, I really I really like went off on Goodreads I was like none of you get how this book is the best book ever mm -hmm, written there's so mm -hmm. many two-star reviews being like I thought this would be fun and it wasn't (laughs) I I just kind of felt like it's like if you read Heartburn because you heard it was about like an expert in Bangladesh who gets left by his wife and then you were like but he didn't say anything about Bangladesh and I'm like yes <laughs> yes or like reading Heartburn and thinking it was like a guide to late stage pregnancy or something or it's like, or oh, a about because <laughs> all the recipes in Heartburn are terrible this book does have a lot in common yeah. with Heartburn and I do think actually that's the thing that got me to read it is that you said it was like Heartburn and Heartburn is one of my favorite books um And this book, like, is very similar in some ways and so different to me in others. But the thing that really, really surprised me about it is that this book is, what, like, 25 years old? What's Mm -hmm. published in, like, 96 or 93? I feel like the movie was made really soon after the book came out. So maybe the movie's, the book is, like, 98. I think it was late 90s, early noughties, both of them. I think, yeah, they were, yeah. And the fact that, like, I get the sense that, France is very, very, very different than it was 20 years ago. And I recognize Mm. so many of these things. And I think maybe it's because it is about American women navigating France and maybe Americans haven't changed that much. Americans Mm. who go to Paris haven't changed that much since 1998 or whatever. And of course, the French have changed. um, And there's a lot of things in this book that I don't recognize, partly because like, I think the the sector of French society that they write about and that most of the French people are in is not the same sector of French society that most of my friends are in. But there's so much that I recognize about like the particular feelings that you have of being a person abroad and like trying to fit in and not fitting in and like the particular kinds of snobbery that you have. And I know we'll talk about like, you know, the neighborhoods of Paris and the details in the book a little bit later, but there's it, it was just so recognizable in a way that I was really not expecting. Um, I kind of want to read her other books, even if they're not about Roxy and Isabel, because. Yes, it is a series. I think she she had wrote. She, she Diane Johnson is an incredible writer and she's still alive. I don't know if she's writing so much today, but um, she had written quite a few well-received novels. And then she seemed to hit pay dirt with Le Divorce. And then she wrote a series of novels about French people in France trying to navigate their otherness. Right. Um, But none of them are about these characters, so I don't care. (laughs) This is the thing. I don't want to read them because I don't care about not these characters. But then I'm like, but... You she know, made me care about you these made characters. Me care about these characters. So. Yeah, so maybe I'd really like them, but I feel like I'd just it's be... It's so petulant, isn't it? <laughs> it is, but I guess that's, you know, embrace one's petulance. That's the moral of my life. Um... <laughs> But, I'm going to go into um, yeah, the plot summary just so everyone can catch us up to where we are. Um, and like I will say, I think there are some books 
that you could listen to in this podcast where like you could probably not read it and still have a fun time listening to people talk about it and I hope you can do this with with this too I know lots of people listen to the podcast that way but this book is just so good and I'm just so confident that every single person who has ever enjoyed a single episode of the podcast will love it that please just get it on your kindle it's it's not hard to find just find it okay now the plot summary Isabel Walker is a young, bored film school graduate who has decamped to Paris to help her older sister Roxy with her second pregnancy. Upon her arrival, she discovers that Roxy has just been left by her French by her French husband, Charles Henri, for another woman. As Roxy tries to negotiate French divorce court and her estranged husband's family, Isabel slowly ingratiates herself into Paris life, becoming the mistress to Isabel's 70-year-old uncle-in-law, Edgar. When a valuable painting belonging to the Walker family gets implicated in the divorce, both families are forced to come together to find a way out. Um, I think that's the plot, right? Yeah, that's about it. I, I might have like some slightly ruder words to say about the family's like response to the painting, but that's pretty much it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think um, like I think now that people have heard the plot summary and they heard the heartburn references earlier, they understand why I think of these novels as being um you know, like a sommelier, like it's the, they're the perfect, you know, mat- matching wine cheese combination. Um, and I, because I am so reticent to compare things to Heartburn because people feel so deeply about that book and so deeply about Nora Ephron. But I also sometimes want to shake the Nora Ephron people by the shoulder sometimes and be like, Nora Ephron was a genius, but her genius was not especially rare. And there were lots of, there are lots of women of her generation who wrote, unbelievable, funny, cheeky, yet highly literate books. And not all of them knew Carl Bernstein. And that's why you haven't heard of them. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, this is this is the thing. I do feel like Nora Ephron. I mean, I love Nora Ephron and I love Heartburn. And, I, and I've like it's it's one of those books that I like buy for people. Like if they've never read it, I'm like, hold on. Give me. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's I'm a great gift to your house. Yeah. It's so good. Um, and I love how gossipy it is. And, and you know, no, no, no offense to, to anything Nora Ephron has ever written. But I do think that she is one of the women that people have chosen as like the female genius and like, like Sylvia Plath, for example, who I'm sure we will get to later in this. Oh, podcast. we'll get to Sylvia. Yeah. But, but there, there are a few women who get picked out to be in whatever canon we're talking about, whether it's coming of age mm-hmm. literature or like, you know, essayist or whatever. Like Joan Didion is one of these where people are like, Oh, but she's great, but they can't name any other women. You know, and yeah, yeah. and that's not Nora Ephron's fault, but it sucks for people like Diane Johnson who are just so fantastic. Um, and I kind of it's weird because I felt like it had a lot of the same beats and there are clearly like some plot similarities. But Nora Ephron is always writing about herself. I mean, Heartburn is clearly about her. And so even mm-hmm. when she's writing fiction, she's always writing about herself. And I didn't get the sense that this is about Diane Johnson in the same way and at first I thought maybe it was because you know she lives in Paris she's had a lot of experience with this I'm sure I'm clearly a lot of the things that she writes about are very true to life so she knows what she's talking about but weren't you telling me that she was like 60 when this book was written or something like that yeah yeah and it's about like like a 23 year old this is very much a novel about like a 23 or we get the sense that she's sort of she's a college dropout. So she's 22, 23, there or thereabouts. She's kind of been bumming around for a while. And it's it's very much a 22, 23 year old, very much in the early 90s. Like it is a period novel that is into its own period. You know, the, we get so many references to like sort of the Bosnian War. We get reference to Rwanda. We get a really wonderful crystallized picture of what Europe looked like at that place in time for a young woman discover like sexually awakening in the middle of all of this. And it's like, I, I mean, I know this is so silly thing to say about like, especially as an author about another author, but I find that so impressive. It really that, like, is. You could be in your 60s or 70s. I'm not sure how old she was when it came out and write about a young woman awakening like spot on the 90s and um, get it so right. The thing about the details that I think is so fantastic, like my my very favorite one is one that is kind of mentioned just in passing in the book and it's actually more prominent in the movie, which I found kind of weird, but it's a reference to Senator Packwood. I think it's Robert Packwood, who was someone that mm. I had not even heard of when I read this, and then there were so many other details in the book that were real. I was like, oh, I wonder if this is real. But all the French people are obsessed with this this American senator. He was a senator from Oregon, I think, who had these like 
he basically had like a sexual abuse scandal and his diaries were entered as evidence. And so there's this whole thing with like all the other senators reading like his his sex diaries, um, which was very scandalous at the time. But again, I think that that's like something that would would shape the way that this person probably thought about sex, like this, you know, the giant, yeah. the, the Monica Lewinsky of 19, no, wait, she was the Monica Lewinsky of 1996. She never actually mentions Monica Lewinsky, does she? That's kind no, of No, I think this is 93 that this is happening. Oh, okay, okay, right. Yeah. Um. So, so, yeah, so the, the, that would be something that would be on her mind and that would shape things, but Diane Johnson is not, like, precious about it. She's not like, well, Senator Packwood was, you know, testifying that day. She just mentions it in passing, never mentions his name. I had to, like, go digging to find out who he was. Yeah. And, and, just, and the way that, all, like, all these French people are obsessed with this story, they kind of, they yeah. love the titillation of sort of a, of a sexual politics scandal kind of thing and how... Every- Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Everyone's kind of speaking about it at table in this way that it feels very jarring to her. It is incredible the way that it relates to like the politics of the moment that it's in. But also you're here 30 years later being like, oh, of course, Roxy lives in this pretentious part of Paris. Mm -hmm. Like there's so the first sort of scene in the novel is Isabel getting off the plane and, you know, it's being like, okay, here I am in France going to my sister's French apartment. And this is like very adorable line about like I had this real sense that she had come down in the world because it's like your classic French apartment building of like it's old and the ceilings are high but everything looks dimly rotted like if you touch the wall it might be a bit like moist and soft and the actual neighborhood that she that Roxy is living in you had you were I mean obviously I don't live in Paris so I don't know about this stuff but you had a great little bit on it and I'd love you to say yeah. more okay so the thing about Roxy's neighborhood because right off the bat you know she she again with the details she literally tells you the address of her building like you can look it up on Google Maps um and and so I was looking at the street on Google Maps I love Google Maps um and uh and I was just like this is very stupid like is this author one of those people who has been to Paris like once? Because it's this very, if you have been to Shakespeare and Company, you have been to within Mm. a block of her apartment. Like it's there. And nobody lives there. Um, Actually, uh, a few years ago, uh, when we were switching apartments, we looked at an apartment in that neighborhood and I was like, I cannot live here. This is, the place that assholes live. And this is like Tourist Avenue. It's like yeah, across, it is. like Shakespeare and Co. Notre Dame is across the way. Like It's almost like, I, I mean, not quite, but it's almost like if I moved to London and I was like, I'm going to live in Carnaby Street. Um, yeah. Or like two yeah. blocks from Carnaby Street. So I'm where the action is, you know? And, <laughs> and so, so I, I, I saw this address and I was like, this is so stupid. Nobody lives there. And certainly like, you know, this French person wouldn't live there. Um, And then you get to meet Roxy. And one of the first things she says is about the ceiling beams in the apartment. And Isabel goes in and she compliments the beams because she thinks they look like California, like their house in California. And Roxy is just like, invents, I mean, not invents. She, she is at a level of snobbery that I did not even know existed. um, Mm -hmm. Being that she has, these ceiling beams, but hers are real. They're load bearing, which means that like her apartment was built before, you know, the 17th century when beams got cool and they just put them in. It's Um, so funny. And it's like, it's such a, I can so imagine that level of pretension, that that thing of having never experienced it, but knowing, oh, I know exactly who this person is. And mm -hmm. like, Roxy is a very like honorable character in many ways, but she's also just sort of faintly ridiculous. 
Um, and even though she's a sort of tragic character who has been, you know, abandoned by her husband, is in this awful situation, it's like the novel is still very comfortable with poking fun at her. And the main things that are poked at are this thing of like, she has moved to France to be a cliche and everything she does is about disproving to everyone that she's here to be a cliche. Yep. And there are levels of cliche in France, right? Because there are, you know, the people who come here for study abroad and wear berets and like drive around in their bicycles, baguettes and whatever. Roxy would never do that. That would be too cliche. She hates those people. But she is like the next level up of cliche and she thinks she's really authentic. And that is why I realized that the Rue Maître Albert, which is where she lives, is the perfect place for her to live because it is exactly where someone who is like, I am that real French person who lives in a garret would live with the view of Notre Dame, you know? And and so um, one of the things about this book that I absolutely love is that there, there are books where if you know the setting really well or you know the period really well, the book is actually worse because the details don't ring true or they make the people seem frivolous in some way that they're not supposed to. Um, But in Le Divorce, the details make everything even better. And clearly, like, you get what she's trying to say about Roxy even without knowing where her apartment is. But because I know where her apartment is, I was just like, oh, yes, this bitch like <laughs> oh it's so good and like i love how you and i are able to have the exact same um interpretation of this character who's so mm-hmm. well drawn but you get to have this little extra thing it's a bit like like a beautiful coat and the lining is also velvet it's like oh a little tree just for fiona <laughs> and other people who know paris very well exactly exactly yes um and yeah. what i'm really fascinated by the whole idea of of Roxy, who is the, the other main character in this book, um, is this thing of like, and it's a hard thing to sort of phrase because there's a, there's um people who you know grow up in a middle class way with very middle class trappings, with very pleasantly middle class parents whose mission in life is for their par- for their children to have the best things possible and for them to sort of you know continue on this gradual trajectory of increasing wealth with every generation when artistic creative or people who think of themselves artistic and creative want to throw off the shackles of that what they see is that kind of middle class entrapment they want to throw off those shackles but they also want to have a very nice life Mm -hmm. and so what they instead do is like rather than outsource their um their sense of credibility to like country clubs or like three holidays a year or all those things their parents thought of as luxury. They instead outsource their sense of credibility to other nations. And that is exactly what someone like Roxy has done, right? She, but it's still wealth. So her husband, the family she's married into, the Pressons, um, they are like an old money French family. And it's a kind of wealth that is preserved through inactivity rather than investment. It's like just been sitting there in a pile for years. No one's going to spend it. No one's going to do anything with it. And like all you know is that like lots of like little fussy items everywhere that have been in the family for hundreds of years and wonderful cheese. But like no one's spending money on great clothes or anything. And this is like everyone has a scarf they've had for a hundred years, you know. Um, like she, so she still aspires to a kind of a bougie wealth class, but because it's an international wealth class, it's somehow different and special and not like the thing she's come from. Does that make sense? Absolutely. It completely does. And it's like, I, I, I think that it makes everything seem, what do I want to say? It, it makes things that if she had married an American with like the type of mother that he has... Mm-hmm. it would be insufferable. But because it's French, it's like, oh, well, that's just how they are and they're classic and they've been here this Completely. way for a thousand years and it's fine. You know, and and maybe she puts up with things from Chalonry that she wouldn't from an American man. We don't know. But because he's like part of this life that she's constructed and she can't have it without him. That's the other thing. Like there's there's so much in this book about women who marry French men looking for this lifestyle and then get left. And like, I think Diane Johnson has like said in interviews that that was part of the inspiration for the book was that she had seen so many American women go through this. Um, and they marry these men because they love them, presumably, but also because like, this is the life that they want and this is how yeah. they get it. And then you see other women in the story who also want a life that is different, a life that is continental or whatever. 
and they don't get it through men and they do much better. Like, um, oh, that's Olivia, so good. Oh my God. I want to say Olivia Pope. That's not her name. Olivia Pace. Um, yes. Olivia she, Pope. Yeah, yeah. Olivia Pace, who is the sort of the, the kind of the Gertrude Stein character. In yeah. This. Oh my God. She's amazing. Uh, especially like, so when we were watching the movie, I think I sent you like 50 texts of like, I want to be this person. Oh my God. But it's like, Oh, she's played by Glenn Close in the movie yeah. with the best wig I've ever seen. Oh, it's so good. And like a wig budget that was not extended to Kate Hudson. <laughs> oh my God. Maybe that's why Kate Hudson's wig is so bad. Or because Glenn Close spent all the wig money. Or maybe they had two wigs and they played poker and Glenn Close won. And that's why she has a good wig. That's now the story of that film. I'm adding it to IMDb <laughs> trivia. But but yeah, I mean, this is the thing. So you see this other character, this other woman who is, you know, in, in many ways, like has less. She's like an American author, right? Yeah. Like, and and but yeah. she made her own money. She has her own house. She's not dependent on any man. She doesn't give a shit about, you know, men or French people. She can go where she wants. Um, and, and she has so much power and she has the life that they want. And you have to wonder, like, why are all these women looking at Olivia Pace and not trying to get what she has the way that she got it? Yes, it's so, and it's such like, I was, by the time I finished this book, I was like, picturing a parallel universe for myself where I'm an English teacher and I'm giving this to 17-year-old girls because I feel like this should be like an A-level text. It's, it is really that good. Um, and it's this thing of what is... And weirdly, I think women do it more than men do where they see a life or a job or a sort of a status that they want and they think, okay, the best way to access it is to marry or fuck into it if you know what I mean. And, th- and like, I did it when I was a young woman, when I was like Isabel's age or whatever, of like meeting these guys who I thought were brilliant or creative or thought they had some kind of trajectory. And that, like, I remember thinking when I was like 17, I was like, I would love to be an author's wife. Like, and I think that's the thing, because like the, the world does sort of like crush your, um, your sense of how realistic it is for you to do anything. So you're like, but at least I'll be able to go to the parties and serve cheese with my husband as he writes his novel. And then I'll be in another Glenn Close film called The Wife. <laughs> well, and and the thing is, like for Roxy especially, she seems to be like a minorly successful poet and her husband does painting. Yeah. It's unclear how successfully. But they live this beautiful life not because either of them is successful at their art. They live it because he has family money. And everything yes. is based on that family money. So she married into this life, but it's not even like that she only has it because he's French and now they have like free healthcare or whatever. Like, mm-hmm. they, although she is clearly obsessed with that. She talks about it all the time in the book where, you know, someone will get mad at her for drinking wine while she's pregnant. She's like, oh, we don't do that here. It's, you know, we, we're not yeah. barbaric and keep people from drinking port. Um, which, yeah. Uh, it's, uh, it, yeah. You, and, and the thing, that's the thing is like, because like this, the, as we said before, this is very, there's a lot of plot similarities to Heartburn in that it is about somebody getting ditched during pregnancy when they like, and that sort of that terrible Victorian situation a woman finding herself in and then you also and also eerily to heartburn you have this um expensive thing that buys her way out in heartburn mm-hmm. it's her engagement ring and in this it's this painting this painting of saint ursula that has been in the family for years and that roxy has or whatever and because you, but the difference here is that you see all of this drama not through roxy's eyes but through isabel's like it's very much we're in Isabel's head the entire time. And that works so well for so many reasons. First of all, because we see how boring other people's relationships are. It's like, Roxy is someone who is like, she's in her head, she's Joe March. She's like, I am the main character. <laughs> and she's always sort of like, even though she's a wonderful person, she's always kind of like flinging herself onto beds and sort of weeping openly. And she's very like very into her own emotions as theatre. And you and you kind of see Isabel kind of giving her the side eye and being like, well, okay, I'm gonna, go. I'm gonna step out. And, and that's so much fun to do. But also it shows you that Isabel doesn't have the whole story. Uh, and although Isabel doesn't seem to, because she's only 22, 23, and 22 year olds don't as a rule think about how other people are getting their money. 
um, especially when they come from very closeted middle class backgrounds, when it's just this resource. The likelihood is, is that the Parsans have been paying for this little family to exist for several years now. And so when when they divorce and they want Roxy's priceless painting of St. Ursula, that might have a little bit more to do with recouping a sense of loss, you know? That's true. Well, and I think that, like, Roxy and Isabel do clearly think of the person as aristocrats in a way that they can never be even though they like live in Santa Barbara the dad is like Mm -hmm. an academic so like they're not you know super fancy but like living in Santa Barbara is no joke like in in you know a gigantic house in a beautiful beach town um and they clearly think of themselves as quite hard done by in this this you know painting selling thing Because they're like, oh, you know, you aristocratic French people want to steal this painting from us, the American family who has done nothing. And like, there's all sorts of emotional whatever going on. But I definitely got the sense from like the way that Isabel talked about it, that it was it was quite grasping and that the family doesn't have any excuse to be grasping because they're already rich in a way that like Isabel and Roxy don't think of themselves because yes, they're American and they can never have the same like aristocratic whatnot even though they have this fucking priceless painting that's been in their family for generations like i'm just sorry happen to have it yeah and there's there's this room. um wonderful line as well where like roxy's always trying to insist that the persons aren't rich that it's just worth wealth works differently here and she says something french people come with three properties <laughs> i don't know any french people do French people come with three properties? So sometimes, yes. And it is kind of weird in that like there will be, so like most of the people that I know here are like not from like aristocratic backgrounds at all, but you never Mm -hmm. fucking know. Like there's this guy that we know who lives in Belgium. He like lives in a sort of shit apartment, sleeps in a hammock on purpose, that kind of thing. And then Mm -hmm. one day a mutual friend was like, oh yeah, he can invite you to like the family island. And I was like, I'm sorry, he has a family island? Okay. Well, that's a thing that people have, I guess. Um, I don't know anyone who has a family island, I don't think. No, certainly not me. It would have been useful during the pandemic, I have to say. Would have been. (laughs) Private island, everyone gets tested. Um, But but yeah, um, so so I, I do think that like they're, there are sort of stealth rich people kind of in the way that Roxy describes. But also, like, if she thinks everyone is like that, then she probably doesn't actually have a very big social circle, which kind of makes sense because it's hard to have a big social circle when you're a a foreigner. Even if you speak the language, like, where are you going to meet them? I guess your kid's school? Yeah, and, and they're very much ingratiated in this sort of class of people who are these very artistic Americans in Paris who... Mm-hmm. And I don't know whether this cliche is always true, again, not having spent much time in Paris, um, but it seems that when pe- when Americans do move to Paris, and, and there's this bit about Europe at the beginning of the book where um, she refers to it as Europe, the repository of something they wish to know and feel they are entitled by ancestry to know. Um, <laughs> but there's this sense that like people go to Paris not to go to Paris, but to be, go to the 1920s or like at the very most the 1960s. Yep. And that's that's the life that has been signed up to live here. Well, Roxy has signed up to live too. And that fun, which makes the book so fun. Isabel is a little too canny to believe in. Like she, I like, I like that we have this main character who hasn't grown up dreaming of Paris and she's just there with a certain sense of open-minded curiosity. She's just like, yeah, I guess Paris. And then we get this insidious thing of Paris, like beginning to crawl under her skin. Mm -hmm. Like it's all, it's very like, um, invasion of the body snatcher is the way Paris gets Elizabeth. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Well, and it's it's through a man. It's through Edgar. It's because she wants yes. to be this mistress for this 70 year old guy. Um, oh so, she, you know, that's why she gets her haircut. And that's why she starts, you know, drinking a gallon of tea a day for perfuming the juices. And I'm sorry to be the first person to say that phrase on this podcast. Oh, my God. OK, we need to, like, step back and just like, let's 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 view the whole Edgar romance in the wide. <laughs> And then we'll get into perfume juices. Are there any other romances that you can think of in women's literature about sleeping with a 70-year-old? Like, especially for, like, a 20-year-old sleeping with a 20-year-old. A 22-year-old sleeping with a 70-year-old. And it is 
not only is it consistently like hot, but yeah. it's genuinely heartbreaking when it ends. Oh my God, it's so sad. But it's because it's written so well. And it's like she, I mean, I feel like her discovering Paris through Edgar kind of makes sense because like a lot of women who come to Paris, like Roxy comes to Paris and she turns herself mm-hmm. into this different person, this like French mother who, you know, wears the right things and you know Mm -hmm. always tries to do the right thing and she's always messing it up she was always having the wrong kind of sugar or whatever but she's Mm -hmm. she's trying to like create this persona for herself through France and maybe through Chalongri we just don't know because we don't really see that relationship in a good time but then you see Isabel doing exactly the same thing with Edgar she's like turning herself into Edgar's mistress in a very specific French way in the way that other women go to France and start you know wearing their hair differently or uh, wearing underwear that matches or something like that I think Isabel actually does that. But yeah. But the 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 thing that I find so like I have read so many novels about like young women and their sexual awakenings and them discovering the world through new eyes. This is the best one. I, I'm just gonna say it. This is the best one I've ever read. It's incredible. Um and how this happens and how like you as the reader become so okay with it which is such a big feat for a 22-year-old and 70-year-old. It's like, so she she goes to lunch with the Persons. She um, meets Uncle Edgar and she's like, oh, there's like this 70-year-old guy and he has a crutch because he sprained his ankle or some shit. And I guess we're having a nice conversation. Okay, now everybody seems to think I'm the au pair, so I guess I'll look after all their children for free for an entire afternoon. That's <laughs> like, oh, that sounds like... And you're reading it, you're like, well, that sounds like a 3 out of 10 afternoon for you, but I'm glad it's over. <laughs> and then <laughs> she has this, like, series of moments. Also, this is the kind of, like, city book where everyone is constantly running into everybody else. And some books set in cities are just like that, and I'm okay with it. Um... She runs into him a couple of times and it becomes one of those things where it's like, oh, well, we're out. Let's go get coffee. Let's like, let's go discuss what's happening with Roxanne and Charles Henri. We're both very, you know, curious about this. And and OK, now let's go to the gallery. Let's go for dinner. And then she sort of says kind of halfway through. And this is broken up by all the other little errands she has in her life. And she has a lot of like gopher jobs that all these Americans give her. And then she kind of about a third of the way in, she's like, I have a crush on the 70-year-old man. And, like, I was flicking through the news one night and I noticed that he was on some French news show and I couldn't understand what he was saying, but I thought it was hot <laughs> that he was on the news. <laughs> and then she's like, has this kind of thing where she's like, I think I'm gonna... I think I have a crush on him. And then, like, she, they, they just kind of have this lovely dinner and he says, I think it's time for us to discuss whether or not you will be our mistress. <laughs> whether or not you'll be my mistress. And then he says something very hot, which is... I have long since given up on the pretense of luring women to my rooms. I have no etchings. <laughs> Which I just love. So good. Side note, my friend's grandfather met her grandmother when he asked her up to his room to see his etchings. And he actually <laughs> did have etchings and he wanted her to see them. And she was like, are we not having sex? Um, <laughs> She's like getting her bra off. Like, oh. Yeah. <laughs> Um, the thing, the wow. thing that I think one of the things that I think makes it really work is that like it's a sexual awakening, but like it's very clear that Isabel is a very like sexually experienced person in some ways. Like as a twenty-two yes. year old, I feel like a lot of times when you have like twenty-two year old sexual awakening with an older man, she's like, "Oh, I wasn't really into boys in high school or whatever." Um, yeah. But no, uh, as as we have discussed. Uh, She's had two abortions at this point. She's had two abortions. Which, like, seems like kind of a lot, given that birth control has been invented. Like, yeah. I mean, I don't know how available it was in California in the 90s, if you could just get birth control if you needed it. It, It's literally, I admired it so much. It was actually very French, um, the way it's dealt with. I I mean, it's it's quite near the middle slash end of the book kind of Mm -hmm. thing, where she says... um, I had uh, had two sort of trips to Planned Parenthood in high school, both of which not down to contraceptive negligence, but just bad luck or some, something like that, which is a very much about like, clear but nuanced way of saying like, you know, I, I wasn't going there for the pill. I was going there for, <laughs> for an abortion, like, you know. And also um, like contraceptive negligence, like, 
that she wasn't on the pill when she was having sex. Like she's she's saying like, yeah, I just winged it and it didn't work out and that's fine. Whatever. Um, and and that, the, the, that her family knows about it, that, that she doesn't have any like shame or problem with it. Seemingly like the way she she writes about it, it just seems like, oh, well, yeah, that's the thing I did. I was young and dumb. Yeah, it's. It's really great because it, throughout the novel, you do get the sense of like, yeah, she is this, um, yeah, we say sexual awakening, but her eyes are pretty much open going all the way through this thing. You know, it's not, what, what's surprising is how she's attracted to someone so much older than her and how he's so great at sex and so cool and great. Um, uh, it's not, you know, the sex itself isn't surprising to her. And she has this thing of like, yeah, I had a fairly wild teens, like, you know, Roxy was always the sort of intelligent, sensitive one. I was kind of sporty and, you know, you get the sense of like, and she's very frank about her own prettiness, which I also appreciate in a novel when a hero is like, yeah, I, I'm fuckable. Like, I'm the hot it's, sister. It's, yeah, I'm the hot sister. It's, it's <laughs> fine. We're all fine with it. It's not like coy at all. Um, and she has a very like liberated view of her own sexuality and it's so free from shame but then the further we kind of unravel her character and the more we time we spend especially with her family we realize that her family do treat her with a kind of a a kind of a negligence and a kind of a carelessness that hurts her deeply that all like all families all comes from this like one little seed of like well you were the sister who got pregnant in high school so how seriously are we really going to take you and they clearly love her to pieces um, and and don't hold her sexuality per se against her but it's still this thing of like this is how we form the basis of how we think about your character you're the girl who got pregnant we don't really take you that seriously and it's so horrible to read is so heartbreaking well and it's interesting because she kind of discovers this over the course of the book like she clearly thinks of herself as the together one like the whole time she's like roxy's falling apart i'm together i'm here to help her and also you know have sex with a 70 year old in paris and you know whatever but she's not like she's never like i was here to find myself like as far as she's concerned she knows exactly who she is even as like we see that change over the course of the book and then she overhears on the phone a few times I feel like or like yeah. through other ways finds out that her parents are referring to her as like the one Roxy has to take care of even though Roxy to her is the one who's completely falling apart and can't handle herself and can't even you know hold on to her dumb French husband um <laughs> and yeah like I feel I feel like the the realization not she never really has a realization that she's the fuck up but she does come to realize that her family thinks that she is and yeah. that's just so sad. So there's this moment towards the end of the book whereby the Persons and the Walkers have had this big lunch. And th- over this kind of lunch, they've realized, or not they re- the, the the mother of Charles Henri has spoken to Isabel and Roxy's mother and been like, look, this is embarrassing, but your daughter is screwing my brother. And, you know, it's kind of, we wouldn't want her to get hurt. And then they're all on the train back from this and their the stepmother, Mar- Marjeev, who's Roxy and Isabel's mother, um, says, she's kind of laughing about it. She's like, oh God, Isabel, what have you been doing now? And it all feels very liberal and very breezy. And then she goes kind of like, oh, I they're kind of like, oh, I, I didn't know how to tell her that, you know, our Isabel can't be hurt so easily. And but our Isabel is so kind of jaded and not saying that she's like the town bike, but sort of saying that like, she is kind of, oh, you don't realize our daughter is already damaged goods. And yeah. that's that's the view. And it's really upsetting to watch this like very, very lovable 23-year-old heroine just watch her family in front of her just be like, oh, like this is how it is. Um, I... I, I think the thing about it that is so sad there is like specifically with that scene and the, the reason that it was so heartbreaking for me is that she's I think she and Edgar have broken up at that point, have they? Or like it's sort of on the outs and she but anyway. She, yeah, he's kind of like I'm going to, to Zagreb. Yeah. So but she has these like this actual heartbreak and these actual like horrible, horrible feelings. And I feel like there's nothing worse than when you can kind of acknowledge to yourself that you are just like bone sad and then someone makes fun of it and someone like yeah 
doesn't recognize your devastation. And and I feel like, especially because they spend this whole time recognizing Roxy's devastation. And to Isabel, mm-hmm. she's like, I feel so bad. Roxy's been feeling so bad this whole time and you're so nice to her and you like see that as a real problem. And now I am so sad and it's not even, you don't even think yeah. it's a problem. You just laugh at me. And like, imagine that not even like, first being so sad and then also like having this sort of ridicule on top of it. Like your feelings aren't even real. It's just, uh, Oh, it's so heartbreaking. It's so heartbreaking. And it's, and like, I hate to say this, but it's so relatable. Like, mm-hmm. I think as well, if you're like a certain kind of character, and I'm, I'm not saying I am this character, but whatever, like of like someone who's like pretty good at projecting like a, a fairly even mood level, who's not necessarily like um, tweeting about their therapy or whatever, <laughs> you know, I I found like, I found I've been in the same situation like a lot of times of like people just thinking that because I can say things breezily, that I am breezy about everything and then therefore they feel like there's a level of things that they'll say to me that they wouldn't necessarily say to another person and it'll really upset me and I'll never find a way to tell them. Because it's <laughs> And I'll really... just be doing Isabel and sit in that train and gaze into my lap. Yes, because it's so hard when someone does, says something to you where you're like, you think that my feelings can't be hurt and now I'm not yeah. going to tell you they can because you clearly don't care. So why would I like give you that power? But like for that to be her family is just... Yeah. When she feels so out of place where she is and she's like, oh, my family has shown up who I feel comfortable with. And then they're like, haha, you're sad. Yeah. And it's such like, what I love about that scene as well is the restraint of the like, it would be so easy. And I think if I, if I were the writer writing that book, I would have like the brothers say like, oh yeah, town bike or, some, or something really crass. But it's not so much a thing anyone says so much as it is an energy that is felt, but very deeply. And I remember when, when you and I were watching the movie at the same time and texting, you were texting me like, oh, they didn't do the scene. And I was like, they did do it, but it was just in her head in the book. Yeah. And that's why the movie, while fun to look at, is not the same thing because it's it's a monologue book. It's something that happens in a girl's brain. Yeah, you know? absolutely. And those, I feel like, are really hard to translate to the screen in a lot of ways, I guess, unless you have Naomi Watts playing Roxy perfectly and Kate Hudson. Oh playing Isabel in a different way. Um. (laughs) What we realized when we watched this movie is that we don't really like Kate Hudson. No. But we love Naomi Watts. Naomi Watts is fantastic. Uh, Naomi Watts can come and hang out with us anytime. Um, Friend of the podcast, Naomi Watts. Friend of the pod, Naomi Watts. (laughs) Honestly, though, I, I don't think I've actually seen that many Naomi Watts movies. And when I watched her, I was like, oh, this, like, she's made of the most beautiful glass and all I can see all of her emotions through the glass and I just want to hold the glass and not break it she does it so well oh my god there's yeah there's so much in this movie about her like every single scene and there's there's again it's one of those things where like one of the things I love about the film um is how much French there is in it and this is also in the book and people complained about this in the Goodreads reviews because of course they fucking did um but but in the movie everything's subtitled like you don't have to speak French to understand the movie but there's long scenes that are just yeah, conducted it's like, it's like a bilingual French. film I would yeah, say absolutely yeah. um and and there's like I feel like if, if you go back and look at it there is actually a lot of character exposed in like when Roxy speaks French to Jean-Henri and when they speak English together and like he's mm. always trying to speak English to her after he leaves her and and I got the sense that was like to try to alienate her and try to make her feel yeah. um okay so I have a friend who uh, was dating a Quebecois Canadian man several years ago. And I have never met him, but she explained it to me as they conducted most of their relationship in French. She's American, but she, you know, spoke pretty good French after living in Quebec for a while. And and she wanted to continue to do that. So they conducted their relationship in French. And when he broke up with her, he sent the breakup email in English. Oh. So that she would definitely understand it. And that is the coldest thing that I have ever heard in my entire life. That's cold as shit. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So I can think of that. her. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I feel like that's a good way to break up, though, because like you'd never call that person again. But it's so because I'm 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 not bilingual, but I it is almost like 
like imagine a breakup situation where one person doesn't want to break up and they keep using the pet names or they keep referring to the jokes or mm-hmm. something and mm-hmm. the other person's like nope the shared lingo is over like that chapter is done please yep. dispose of all these nicknames that you thought of over several years mm-hmm. you know it's such a distancing thing it's so good yeah i wish i knew another language so i could alienate someone with it <laughs> Don't they make you take like Irish language classes in Ireland? I thought this was a thing. No. Yes, they do. But I, <laughs> I was not good at it. Although um, my like my kind of big serious boyfriend when I was a teenager, uh, he came from a family who spoke all Irish and they didn't the parents didn't necessarily approve of me. And they used to speak Irish around me to kind of alienate me. So I do not have warm feelings about the Irish language. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> yeah, that's a story for the memoir. Uh, so <laughs> I witnessed that happen at a. Uh, uh, we usually spend Christmas if we're in Paris. Obviously not this year, but uh, at this giant Chinese restaurant in Chinatown because that is where I always want to spend Christmas. It has an Elvis mm-hmm. impersonator. Um, anyway, uh, and le- two years ago, two years ago, we were seated next to a family, um, who were French Chinese and they clearly spoke both languages and the daughter had brought a French boyfriend, a white French boyfriend with her. And it was clearly the first right. time that they were meeting and he didn't speak Chinese and the parents kept just like speaking Chinese and refusing to speak French in front of him, even though they clearly were bilingual and it was so awkward. Awful. Yeah, it it's such Christmas a power ever. move. It's the, it's the like, this person you've brought here may be nice, but they will never belong kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It's a huge, huge power move. Um, I feel like we've talked about like the themes and the plot of this book a lot. Yeah. But I think for people to really buy this, which they really need to, <laughs> um, the, I feel like the, the tone and the writing are something that we need to really drill in on. Um, do you did you have any like quotes or anything from the book that you particularly loved? Like there was one thing about nail polish that I think we both loved. Um, she says, "I was wearing nail polish. I don't know why. Well, I knew why. <laughs> if I were telling an American story, to mention nail polish would be to signal that it was not a serious story. Was meant to be read under the hairdryer, but in a French story, it is a revealing spiritual detail." Also, French men think American women are too understated and ought to be flirtatious. They think we don't try, but they don't realize that in America, if you try flirtatiously, you get blamed for any bad thing that might happen to you. It's so good. It's so good. And there's so much understanding in it. Again, like it's one of those things where like, like you get so much about her own experience with misogyny in America. You get so much about this sort of one something that some, someone said this to me, I did not make this up, but um, that, that France is less misogynistic and more sexist than the United States in that there is like a much stronger division between women things and men things, but the women things are not seen as so awful compared to the men things. Oh. So I feel like in America we have this idea of like, oh, these things are girly, therefore they're stupid. And in France, it's not so much like that, but it is like women do these things. They're not yeah. bad. Like wearing nail polish is not frivolous. You don't suck for doing it, but you got to do it because of being the lady. Um, so sorry, say that again. So it's less misogynistic, but more sexist. Right. Less misogynistic, that but more what, sexist. Yeah. Like because the. That's so fascinating. Yeah. And, and I think that that's really. That has generally seemed to be true. I mean, of course, like, you know, younger generations are generally less sexist as well. Um, mm-hmm. But I, but I do get the sense that 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 maintains um and and you see this a lot in sort of the the different women in the book trying to grapple with femininity in both countries like there's that woman who's writing a book about French women and she's fucking fascinated by them and she's like French women they all have these secrets they all like know what's going on with the scarves and the nail polish and all this stuff and you see Isabel like kind of trying to get into that and then realizing that there's not really that much there like it's so interesting and like I feel like that is like a burn on a certain kind of literary culture that didn't even exist when Diane Johnson was writing like I remember like in the early noughties there being this big spade of like French women do this French women aren't fat blah 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 it was like a whole thing and like literally it's the book that this woman is writing (laughs) yeah it's amazing yeah 
Um, and, and she says she says this great thing where she's like, she talked about French women like she personally had been wronged by them many times. Like this thing of like, they're always stealing our men. They have their ways. It goes from grandmother to mother to daughter. Like they're conf- like as if like French women are literally having these conferences that like it's it's so mental. It is. And it's also so funny because like, Okay, I, I I always think it is hilarious when you have someone who thinks they are in competition with somebody, mm-hmm. but actually that second person thinks they're in competition with someone else. So like, um, you know, the Washington Post always thinks it's trying to catch up with the New York Times and the New York Times is just thinking about the Wall Street Journal and doesn't think about the Washington Post at all. That kind of thing. Um, but yeah. But so I have read things by French women about English women and how they feel like judged or like, you know, they think that English women are, you know, dumpy and serious or whatever like I read a whole book by this French woman it was amazing I should find it for you it is very very bitchy in a very funny way um but they never say shit about Americans (laughs) like they really don't like in in my general experience like French people are pretty nice to and about Americans and Americans are always like you hate us you think (laughs) we're dumpy and stupid and they're just like "Eh, no you seem good. Yeah, we, we don't, don't want about you at Angeles. all. Yeah, exactly. We don't think about you at all. We, you know, are all interested. Which is the greater insult, right? Right, exactly. It is so much worse. Um, Especially if you come from a country that is sort of like globally known as being thought of all the time. Mm-hmm. That it's like on everyone's lips constantly. And to have a country just roundly say, oh, no. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's like sometimes I will tell an English friend that I haven't heard of like a specific English children's book and they'll be so offended because they're like but Mm. but books are our thing but children's books we we invented them and I'm like we invented we invented eating sandwiches outside (laughs) (laughs) and children's books yeah oh man I, I feel like we haven't like talked about the plot twists that much True. Is it because we don't care about them? Well, it's it's because the third act of the book feels very divorced, huh, divorced huh. from from the rest of the book, and it it's not that it doesn't work; it's just kind of off the rails. Mm. Um, and I feel like there's like in the movie that the the actor who is pivotal to the third act of the book feels like he is in a different movie the entire time. Yeah, Matthew Modine. Yeah. Yeah. Which I he seemed like someone I knew who they were, but like in a hey, it's that guy kind of way. I don't know. Maybe he is really famous for something. He was in full metal jacket, I think was his big thing. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. I have not seen that. I saw mm-hmm. one of the other ones in that trilogy, and then I was like, Enough movies about the Vietnam War. Finished. <laughs> Enough. <laughs> Enough. Aren't we are we done with that? Um But yeah, like I, I feel like the the end of the book is this sort of wild kind of thrilling big set piece and you really don't understand it for about until it's like 60% of the way done and then you're just like okay well now I know how this has to end and then there's like a whole nother big set piece on the end of it and they're they kind of like Mm. have to resolve all these threads or she has to kind of resolve all these threads at the end of the book and they kind of do resolve the book but they kind of also feel like they're in a different book I don't know yeah yeah and I, I feel like that, like, that happens to me a lot. <laughs> <laughs> when you're writing a book and you're like, shit, I have to resolve this thing. Yes. Yes, it does. Like, I, I've, like, my, like, biggest sort of shortcoming as an author, I think, is that, like, I'm always just, like, squeezing in this little bit more plot and then when I look back on the book a year later I'm like you didn't need all that like why did you think you needed all that so like I'm never gonna (laughs) I'm never gonna like criticize an author for like putting like too much in and then rushing to conclude it because it is exactly my Achilles heel and I think it's well I think it it comes from a kind of an insecurity of like um suddenly realizing like 70,000 words into something, you're like, I can't have a whole book that's just some girl's feelings. <laughs> and, and then like once the book has been on the shelf a few years, people are like, I really loved the bit about the girl's feelings. <laughs> and that's actually, you know, thank God 
for women in books and women who read and buy books because there is just they're like that's what we want. I mean, <laughs> unfortunately, I think we could argue that in American politics, a romance novelist literally just saved the country. So, like, you know, I I think that yeah, Stacey Abrams what? is a romance novelist on the side, and she organized oh. getting out the vote in Georgia and now there's going to be like an actual functional government. So like, thanks romance oh, novelist. Romance novelist saving the world. I didn't know she was. Yeah. Oh my God. Oh my God. Uh, I have this ambition to make her like the best selling author in the country because uh, she's I love just everyone so giving amazing. her five stars on Goodreads. Yeah, just exactly. Like- <laughs> I'm just like, buy her books, buy her books, everyone buy her books there. Uh, I should find her pseudonym. Um, it's oh uh, God. are they good? I have not actually read them. Oh, <laughs> I just started I see. buying them um, because I was like, oh, she's amazing. She it's Selena something. Um, Selena Montgomery. Um, Such a romance novelist name. Right. Um, but yeah, then I was like, maybe we should just go to like the Romance Writers of America and be like, does anyone want to get into politics? Is- Seems good. Well, the thing is, if we think about what, what the things that romance novelists meditate on, the most it's like it's compassion it's sort of like and a lot of time it's very domestic disputes it's class like it's sort of like upstairs downstairs sort of like oh we wish we could be together but unfortunately society is fucked up i mean he's a shake and she's a paralegal and how will this ever work right like so maybe i mean if i was gonna put any kind of novelist in charge i would definitely put romance novelists in charge i also think that to be a romance novelist you have to be kind of non-judgmental like yes. i mean maybe that's not true but but i do feel like if you were the most beloved ones definitely are yeah. yeah well if you were really judgmental well first like you'd write terrible sex scenes and second you'd never be able to write any sex scenes because you'd constantly be looking at it and being like Ugh. you know and yeah, so gross. so you, you never you never be good and also, okay, final word on this, they are comfortable with huge amounts of research. Yes, that is and very so, true. And so, like, given, like, a romance novelist a huge stack of papers and be like, okay, you know, ingest this all these bills <laughs> and find which ones you want to vote on, they'd be like, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly, <Hey>. exactly. <laughs> I think we just saved the world, maybe. We did! That's so good. We- is it good? Very okay, good. one thing that we have to talk about before we end this podcast. Is it Sylvia Plath? It's Sylvia Plath! <laughs> <laughs> How much of this book is secretly kind of shade on Sylvia Plath? Oh my god. 20%? So funny. <laughs> Tw- okay, so first of all, let me let me inform the reader of our journey with this and Sylvia Plath. <laughs> so I was reading this and, you know, there... Uh, so Roxy's a poet and she's married to an artist and, like... There are references to Sylvia Plath because Sylvia Plath was also a beautiful blonde poet who was troubled with her husband. And, like, that makes sense to make those kind of references. There's, like, references to poetry generally. One that I wrote down over here that I enjoyed a lot, um, which was... Where is it gone? Oh, it's... it's, I admire Roxy's poems. I don't mean otherwise. I wish I could find two screwy words and put them together so that they fizz. And, like, she can (laughs) two screwy words and put them together it always surprises me to read Roxy's poems because in person the way she talks she sounds like a normal person you wouldn't have thought her thoughts would be so odd and complicated (laughs) the way that she talks about Roxy's poetry like first when she like I think she just like mentions her as a poet and it's like almost a little bit like Matter of fact, but also kind of reverent. Like it's a cool thing to be. It's like a cool thing to say that you're a poet. Yeah. Your sister's and she's a like, poet. Oh, she's she's like a she's like a real poet. She's been like published in all these journals and stuff. And then and she's respectful of it. it. Her her as her opinion of Roxy kind of deteriorates as she begins to feel like she is the you know more more worldly woman for a while in the middle of the yeah. book. She starts to say these things about Roxy and her poetry. She has this thing that I wrote down, which is even Roxy with her trustful romantic view of men was sort of an underachiever, except. For for the occasional poem and poems are short <laughs> and so this is obviously hilarious right but then once you know I, I do what everyone does when they become obsessed with the book which is you google the author incessantly um we find that diane johnson was a peer of sylvia plath in the most tantalizing way because if anyone's read The Bell Jar, which is based on the sort of summer magazine internship that Sylvia Plath did when she was in her late teens, and was everyone knows it's kind of based on a real thing. Um, 
Diane Johnson was on the same internship. Like it's so good. It's so good. It's so good. And she said something about it. She's like, oh yeah, like I remember Sylvia really well. And like she was definitely and it really, it really colours for me the Roxy and Isabel dynamic. The, the sense that like everyone knew in that room that Sylvia was the one who was touched by destiny. And Diane, by comparison, just felt like, yeah, I'd kind of been sort of jotting off stories in my bedroom and I could clearly see that Sylvia was the great talent and that I probably wasn't and maybe I should try harder. <laughs> it's so good. It is. It's so good. It also makes me wonder who else was on that internship. Um, but but yeah, I mean... I, I know it's like the Bennington College thing. I'll run up again. It's like, wow, like we need to look in the, into the internship even further, please. And then I feel like, you know, if you if you start that way in life where you're like, I mean, not not to armchair psychology diane johnson who i'm sure is very you know happy and successful and generally great in her life and does not think about sylvia plath every day um i I feel like were i 20 and on the same uh internship as sylvia plath and it made me want to try harder but also like knew that i was not the one who was touched by genius um or the one who was touched by god or whatever like and then you see what happens to sylvia plath and you're like huh maybe i'll move to paris and write a bunch of fun stories and get nominated for a pulitzer and not (laughs) marry ted hughes and that's exactly what she did. Yep. And also, especially if you take into account um, Roxy's suicide Oh, attempt. yeah, right. She does try to kill herself. <laughs> yeah. I feel like all the really bloody parts of this book, I kind of forgot about as soon as I read them. Like Charles-Henri, like dying yeah. and being left by the trash cans or in the movie In the Trash Cans, which... Ugh. Yeah, because he's garbage. Because he's a garbage. Garbage. <laughs> In the poubelle. Um, <laughs> it's very good. Yeah. It's so tantalizing. <laughs> so good. Like, because I am not one of these people who, like, cares that much about Sylvia Plath. And, like, I respect the sort of the institution. And I respect what she did for kinds of teenage girls who weren't me. And so I didn't think mm-hmm. something like this could get, get to me. But it absolutely has sucked me in. Do we have anything left to say about Le Divorce? How, how how's my pronunciation by the way? It's actually pretty good. Good. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I'll come live with you. Yes. Then. Okay. Good. Good. <laughs> I will move into a bigger apartment with ceiling beams. Get a chambre de bonne. Load bearing. <laughs> Only load bearing. <laughs> <laughs> you'll just walk into the apartment. You'll be like, I don't think those are load bearing, and you'll just walk out. <laughs> This has been Sentimental Garbage, and I've been Karen O'Donoghue. You can follow me on Twitter at Zaraline, that's C-Z-A-R-O-L-I-N-E, or email me by the podcast at ZaralineO'Donoghue at gmail.com. This has been a Justice for Dumb Women podcast. Thanks to Harry Harris for the jingle, Gavin Day for the logo, and Acast for the recording space. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.